So it could be multiple. And it's also changeable. It's not, it may not always be the same all your life. You might be one, more one thing at one stage and then become something else or something maybe a little different or think of it differently than you did in an earlier stage. You can be different things. To say that you're a New Yorker and to say that you're Puerto Rican doesn't necessarily have to contradict it. A lot of people think that way, but I, I don't believe that. I think more and more people are realizing that you can be more than one cultural self at the same time, and you're at the crossings of those. Rather than being just squarely in one, you'll be at the crossings. Hello, Georges Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Our beloved colleague Juan Flores passed unexpectedly after a sudden illness on December 2, 2014. Juan was one of the pioneers in the field of Latin American studies, an important figure in building a post-revolutionary bridge to Cuba, and a true lover of good music who left behind a body of important work about it. We can't get used to not having him with us. And we are commemorating his passing with this encore presentation of our 2006 Hip Deep episode, Riqueza del Barrio, featuring guest scholar Juan Flores. And we'll be hanging out with one of our longtime collaborators from the axis of Hip Deep. He's the author of Cuba and its music, from the first drums to the mambo, my old buddy. Ned Sublet. Hello, Georges Colonnais. Hey, Ned, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm fine, and uh, I'm very happy to have you on this show. Let's party. Hey, Ned, is that a pandereta in your pocket? No, I'm just happy to see you. But we have got some panderetas on the way. Well, tell them what a pandereta is. Panderetas sound like this. Well, it's that tambourine-like drum that they use in the Puerto Rican plena. We'll hear a plena or two today, by the way. And go hip deep into an interview I did with Dr. Juan Flores. Professor of Black and Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College and Professor of Sociology at the CUNY Graduate Center. He's been teaching since the 60s and he's a keen observer of the Puerto Rican cultural scene, especially in New York. He's the author of From Bomba to Hip Hop, Puerto Rican Culture and Latin Identity, and other books. One of the things I especially like about his work in sociology is that music is never very far away. And it's never very far away on Afropop Worldwide, so let's hit them. With a killer piece of music by the late piano master Charlie Palmieri from his album El Gigante del Teclado, recorded in 1972 and just reissued. And I want to call your attention to how fantastic the recording quality is. Sin duda, sin duda, tengo que quejarme. La vida se pone cara. 
esta subsistencia difícil y no puedo soportar no sé dónde voy a dar con esta sociedad llena de complejidad mirando el paisaje me desespero los precios suben y suben y yo me quejo esta desesperación no tiene ni solución me tendré que unizar conformándome a gozar con el sedante derrumba el mambo y el guaguancó con el sedante derrumba y guaguancó pa' los soneros traigo sedante derrumba y guaguancó Con el C 
están gozando Sedante, sedante, mira sedante derrumba Belén Oye, pero ven, ven, ven a gozar Sedante de Rumba, the immortal Charlie Palmieri. Georges Collinet with you, along with Ned Sublet. On Afropop Worldwide, Hibdi. Today, Riqueza del Barrio, Puerto Ricans in the United States. Ned, what's Riqueza del Barrio? Well, El Barrio's the neighborhood, and Riqueza is richness, like cultural richness, rhythmic richness, deep flavor. We're looking at culture through music, but there's more than music to think about. The music shouldn't be treated in isolation. A lot of times people talk about the music as though there were no other things going on in terms of cultural expression, first of all, but in terms of what's going on in society. Our guest today, Dr. Juan Flores. All of these musical phenomena and the emergence of new styles are accompanied by a lot of other forms of expression simultaneously. The way people dress, the way people walk and talk, and, and literature that they read, and the radio shows and all that. I like to contextualize the musical history. When you contextualize the history of Puerto Ricans in the United States, a key date is 1917, because that was the year Puerto Ricans became United States citizens, able to come and go as they pleased without a passport, and also, not coincidentally, just in time to serve in World War I. The leading African-American band leader in New York, James Reese Europe, famously went to Puerto Rico to staff his military band, the Hellfighters. Not realizing they would go into combat in Europe, the Puerto Rican wind players enlisted and served in the Negro units, where they were a minority. Among them was Rafael Hernandez, who would become the best-known Puerto Rican composer of all time. The punchline. Puerto Ricans have been part of every African-American music movement that's been in New York since the early days of jazz, all the way up through hip-hop. Puerto Ricans are in a number of United States cities, especially on the eastern seaboard, but especially they've been an important part of the soul of New York, the musical soul of New York, all through the 20th century and into the present day. I asked Juan Flores about Puerto Rican identity. With an open circuit between Puerto Rico and the United States since 1917, is it or is it not part of the United States? Well, it has this kind of limbo status. Uh, it's a colonial status, but one that's uh also described as associated. It's an unincorporated territory. It has a very, very confusing political status. Some people say it's the oldest colony in the world. The population has grown by now to uh, oh, a total of five a million to six million people, half of whom are living in the United States, so that you have probably the largest outmigration anywhere as well, where half of the country's population lives outside of the national territory. People who live in Puerto Rico are citizens from birth. However, they don't enjoy full rights as citizens. For example, when there is conscription, they have to serve in the armed forces, but they have no right to vote for the commander-in-chief. That's the first signal of a colonial people, when they have to sacrifice their lives on behalf of a country that they can't even decide who the leader is. They don't vote in federal elections. Uh, on the other hand, they don't pay federal taxes, so that there's certain advantages and drawbacks. 
What it has meant, however, is that there's been a free flow of people back and forth because there's no questions of immigration status and green cards and residency requirements and all those other things to be here. However, the coming and going has not always been as people please. It hasn't always been a voluntary process in the sense that, oh, let's go north and live in New York for a while. It's been as a result of that colonial relation. It's a labor migration that is working people who are basically moved out where it was made to look attractive for them to be in the United States. At first, in the 40s and 50s, it seems like, okay, at least you can get a job there and you can settle in and you have some chances. But as time went on, and those models began to show themselves for what they were, which is basically bankrupt of any real long-term benefit to the working people. People were caught in a trap and became ghettoized. In 1917, Puerto Rico was very poor. Puerto Rico is still very poor. The crisis, though, of really uh, severe misery was in the 1930s. Recording of Puerto Rican music at that time was done pretty much entirely in New York, so the musicians were part of that out-migration to the north. Oh yeah, it was a constant back and forth. Even if they lived here, they uh, were continually going back to the island and having continual visitors from the island and new arrivals from their family and friends would come. And so there's a constant infusion of the culture into the diaspora situation and a constant returning by people from here back there and bringing back things. So it's a back and forth. It's a two-way street. People bring the traditional forms and their experience from the island. It becomes alive again here, stays alive here. And then as people go back, they bring those forms as they've been influenced by life here and as the themes of life here come into play. They become popular down there. From 1936, here's Manuel Jimenez, better known as Canario with Que Vivio. It's the style known as Plena with the three tambourines known as Panderetas. The words say, what a great life the people in New York have. Papacito, con la mierda, 
From 1936, Canario y su grupo with Que Vivio, Georges Collinet. And Ned Sublet with you on Afropop Worldwide. Today, a hip-deep episode, Riqueza del Barrio, Puerto Ricans in the United States. And let's hear one more number by Canario. Probably the most famous song from the early days of Puerto Ricans in New York, Rafael Hernandez's Lamento Borincano first recorded on July 14, 1930, in the earliest days of the Depression, when the economy was still sinking. It didn't bottom out until 1932. I asked our guest, Professor Juan Flores, about the song. Lamento Borincano means Puerto Rican lament. So it's a very sad song. It tells the story of a peasant from up in the hills who goes into town. He's really happy. He goes off to sell his wares at the market. And he has some root plants and some fruit and vegetables from his truck garden or whatever. And he's bringing them into the market in town. And he gets into the town and the market is dead. There's nothing happening there. There's no economic transactions at all. And he can't sell his wares. And then it accompanies him back to his house. Very, very, very sad. And he hasn't been able to sell anything. And he was going to buy a dress for his wife. And then it ends. I mean, it's like it's a really, it's a simple story, but it's a story that carried such incredible significance for so many people who lived this idea of the capitalist system not being able to provide for them anymore. It just kind of went poof. And so it became an anthem for the Latin American immigrant. Even though it doesn't take place in New York, it's written in New York and it's first performed in New York and it's recorded in New York and everything, but it doesn't actually say New York. But you can understand that it's about the movement of the peasantry into the urban setting and finding the home there, finding no place for them to go, no accommodation, and entering into a really sad frame of mind. And it was just playing from all the windows of the tenements and from the record stores back in the early 30s during the Depression years and was symbolic for so many people. Si yo vendo la cara 
carga mi Dios querido Un traje a mi viejita voy a comprar Hasta la mañana entera sin que nadie quiera tu carga comprar Su carga comprar Todo From 1930, that's Canario y su grupo with Rafael Hernandez's Lamento Borincano. Josh Codinet with you. And Ned Sublet, together with our special hip deep guest, Dr. Juan Flores. And our program today is Riqueza del Barrio, Puerto Ricans in the United States. Of course, we can't even name all the great Puerto Rican musicians in one hour. But we have to hear something from Eddie Palmieri, don't you think? I do, I do. Charlie's younger brother. Also a pianist sounding better than ever today, by the way. One of the most important figures in American music, if you ask me. Born and raised in New York City. He started his band in 1961, the same year Ray Barreto started his. I picked out a number from his early days. It's a pachanga. Pachanga was the last hot style to be imported from Cuba before the United States and Cuba cut off relations. From Eddie Palmieri's groundbreaking group, La Perfecta, here's El Molestoso. <laughs> Hey, 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 soy el moretoso, el, 
molestoso, eh, 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 hoy, el molestoso, eh, eh, eh. Camila, Bobby.
Cheo Feliciano with the Joe Cuba Sextet in a song that became a standard. El Raton, a song about the one who saw what you hoped nobody saw. From the early 60s, something was really going on in those days. Well, January 1st, 1959, the Cuban Revolution. Suddenly, ah, yes. New York doesn't have new music trends coming in from Cuba, and the Puerto Ricans are now front and center stage. I heard Eddie Palmieri on stage a couple of years ago say, there was the mambo, and there was the cha-cha-cha, and after that was the pachanga, and after that there was nothing. <laughs> he was being modest, of course, because what came after that was Eddie Palmieri. Here's what Juan Flores said about it. I think Eddie was the one who refers to the umbilical cord being cut when the Cuban Revolution happened and the musicians could no longer move freely back and forth and bring their instruments and compositions and tunes and rhythms with them so that then things had to come from home base, from New York itself, like what's here? And that's what at the same time you had a new generation of people that were born and raised here. They weren't born on the island anymore, they were born here. And that's when we got the first homegrown New York Latin musical style, Boogaloo. Hombre, homo, That's how I refer to it as the first New Yorkian music, because it's got the song Montuno and all that, and the mambo and the cha-cha-cha, but at the same time, it's got the soul music and the R&B and the doo-wop and all that stuff that was out there in the air in the American music scape becomes part of it. And then you have this patchwork kind of music that's like a fusion of crossover that starts to make it up to the charts and that the young people loved. And the masters complained that it was not really music, it's garbage, it's bubblegum music, whatever they want to call it. But it's what really made a big hit. And it was the best-selling music, Latin music, until that time. Here's one of the biggest Boogaloo hits from 1967, Pete Rodriguez and I Like It Like That. <laughs> oh, my feeling good, man. Let me say this now. Here and now, let's get this straight. I gave it the Latin beat You know, child, I'm kind of hard to beat <laughs> yeah, I like it like that You better believe me when I tell you I said I like it like that I'm a galoo, I'm in a I like it like that I like it like that I said I like it like that And I want it like that I like it like that I've got the soul I've got the soul 
There's more to come. Don't go away. The conversation between Juan Flores and Ned Sublet covered a lot of ground. A full transcript is posted on our website, along with some of Ned's pictures of leading New Yorkian performers. So go to afropop.org. That's A-F-R-O-P-O-P dot O-R-G. I'm Georges Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. Ned, there's a tendency in the United States to treat people as if they were either black or white. So-called race. And Latinos in general get racialized, that is, treated as if they were a separate race. Juan Flores speaking of the Puerto Rican community. Of all the groups that have come from other shores, you know, in this nation of immigrants, it's the one that formed the closest bond with the African-American population of any group that's ever come. Even the West Indian, which came very close, especially up in Harlem, Harlem Renaissance and the influence of Jamaican intellectuals and so forth, was more on an individual basis and on the basis of more privileged set of the society. But in terms of communities actually coming together, living in the same neighborhoods, interacting, intermarrying, partying together, developing musical and literary and artistic styles and tastes that coalesce and, and influence each other and become indistinguishable or become something totally new. This is the one that I would say, of all the different peoples that have come over here, have actually integrated themselves with the African American. Not that they come without racism. They come with their own native-born racism from the island, uh, where blacks are still uh, ridiculed, subordinated, discriminated against, sometimes in a jocular way, so it's dismissed that it's actually racist, but it is very racist, sometimes outrageously so. Generally, the Latinos are racialized toward kind of a non-whiteness, because even the white ones are not exactly white in the same way that the Anglo American would be considered white. But there's a lot of people that clamor for whiteness, and since it's a position of privilege, a recent poll revealed that 80% of Puerto Ricans consider themselves white, self-identify as white. Uh, if you see them walking down the street, you would think otherwise, but the acceptance of blackness and the affirmation of blackness among Puerto Ricans and now Dominicans happens here and then gets sent back. It becomes something that lands back there, first rejected, and nowadays, especially in the age of hip-hop, becomes embraced by a lot of the young folk. I asked Juan, when did the term New Yorican come into currency? It came into currency in the early 70s. There had been other prior terms like that, Neo-Rican, that was people from the island often used that Neo-Rican, so it's kind of like a new kind of Puerto Rican. New York-Rican has the place designation as well, New York-Rican. N-U-Y-O-R-I-C-A-N has become the established way of spelling it. So you have an almost phonetically Spanish way of saying New York-Rican. It's a very interesting term. And then it gained particular currency around 1973-74, where there was an anthology of poetry called New Yorican Poetry, and the New Yorican Poets Cafe opened up, and it was very defiant toward both becoming American, that is, we're New Yorkers. We're, yeah, we're not just New Yorkers, we're New Yorkers that are Puerto Rican. And Puerto Rican, we're not just Puerto Ricans, we're Puerto Ricans from New York. So it was this kind of dual identity that was being affirmed very strongly back in those years of an ethnic kind of affirmation of the late 60s, early 70s, when you had also the Young Lord's Party in the political vein and, and salsa 
coming into its own and other forms of music that could not be separated from the influence of living in the United States. The term New Yorican, in fact, is an adoption of a term that was a pejorative term used by Islanders, those are the New Yorkans. So then some of the poets and the people from here say, oh, you call us New York? That's what we are, we're New Yorkans. And so that's how it became a term of pride. So it's not just location, there's a class dimension to it that everybody talks about, and a racial dimension. New Yorkans are black, whereas we here on the island are not really black, you know, that kind of thing. Juan also said that some people call Tito Puente the first New Yorican. Hmm, probably the best known to this day. In the 50s, he and his rival Tito Rodriguez held court in the glory days of the Palladium. Until Tito Puente died in 2000, his band was the sharpest band around. It was a big band. Tito was in the Navy in World War II. He saw combat, and he ran his band like a commanding officer. So let's play one of his famous mambos from the 50s. From his big hit album of 1958, Dance Mania.
All right, Tito Puente, the first major Latin music star to be a native speaker of English. Puerto Ricans in the United States are often deeply bilingual, which was part of the uniqueness of the New Yorican poetry movement, an important scene in 1970s New York, just before rap arrived. Here's a short excerpt of Puerto Rican Obituary, the most famous poem by the late Pedro Pietri, first read in 1969. Pedro Pietre, who died in 2004, was born in Ponce, Puerto Rico and raised in Harlem. He was a co-founder of the New Yorican Poets Cafe, which is still in operation today. This is a recording from back in the day. They were always on time. They were never late. They never spoke back when they were insulted. They worked. They never went on strike about permission. They never took days off that were not on the calendar. They worked 10 days a week and were only paid for five. They work, they work, they work and they die. They die broke. They die owing. They die never knowing what the front entrance of the first National City Bank looks like. Juan, Miguel, Milagro, Olga, Manuel, all die yesterday, today, and will die again tomorrow, passing their bill collectors on to the next of kids. All die waiting for the Garden of Eden to open up again under a new management. All die dreaming about America, waking them up in the middle of the night, screaming, Mira, Mira, your name is on the winning lottery ticket for $100,000. All die hating the grocery stores that sold them make-believe steak and bulletproof rice and beans. All die dreaming, hating, and waiting. Dead Puerto Ricans who never knew they were Puerto Ricans who never took a coffee break from the Ten Commandments to kill, kill, kill the landlords of their cracked souls and communicate with their Latin souls. Juan, Miguel, Milagro, Olga, Manuel, from the nervous breakdown street where the mic is like
music from the Puerto Rican underground scene of the 70s, Grupo Folclorico y Experimental, with Adelaida, a plena just for you. More to come, so don't go away, but first... Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art, and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Together, Willie Colon and Hector Laveau became big stars. Willie Colon, who adopted the bad guy pose and later ran for Congress, was a band leader trombonist from the Bronx. Hector Laveau, the sensationally popular singer with his group, who had an ultimately fatal appetite for drugs, was from Ponce, Puerto Rico. Juan Flores. The combination of the Bronx guy, Willie, and this guy from Ponce, working class, you know, background in Ponce, was a terrific combination. And as a result, they could do these things, which, you know, you talked about the back and forth, the open circuit, you know, between there and here. I think, to me, they're the best example. When you get these two guys teaming up, one is very much a product of the island, grew up on the island the whole deal. The other guy grew up in the Bronx, and yet they make tunes that are really unforgettable. I mean, and really unique, I would say, in their own way. They did stuff that, to me, is really very special in, in bringing out that duality of cultural location. You know, here and on the island, you can move back and forth. You can use one to critique the other. This is one of their many classics, Calle Luna, Calle Sol, a song about dangerous streets. The lyrics are set in Puerto Rico, but people in a lot of places could relate to it.
Colón and Hector Lavoe, Calle Luna, Calle Sol. And speaking of dangerous streets, we want to close this program by remembering a fallen brother, New Yorican piano virtuoso Hilton Ruiz. One of Hilton Ruiz's last sessions was on the last recording by the legendary Ray Barreto, who went to glory in February 2006 at the age of 76. So the album Standards Reconditioned was a posthumous release for both of them. Ray Barreto on congas, Hilton Reese on piano.
late, great Rebareto. Thank you, Ned Sublet. Thank you, Georges Colonnais. It's always good getting on the mic with you. And thanks to our special guest, Juan Flores. If you want to read the full transcript of Ned's interview with him and see Ned's pictures of New Yorkan artists in action, just click over to afropop.org. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research, field recording, and co-production for this program by Ned Sublet. Senior editor for Afropop.org is Banning Air. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kappen and Paul Ruest. Our producer for new media is Atane Ofiadja. And I am Georges Collinet. R.I. Public Radio International.